Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Investing with the IBD sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Today is February 3rd, 2021. I'm your host, Arusha Paris. And today we have Diane Kang on the show. Diane is the CEO and co-founder of Brainify. Thanks for being here, Diane. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. I've been listening to her podcast for a while now. Oh, cool. Thank you. Uh, for the first two segments, we are going to talk with Diane. And then for the third segment, we will have Scott St. Clair come on to talk about the current market and some stock ideas. Okay, Diane, let's get into this now. First, I do want to mention this because it's very, very impressive. You were named to the Forbes 30 under 30 list. So congrats. Thanks. I was really excited to learn about the news. And I'm glad that I'm going to keep moving forward and see where it goes. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a it's a very, very impressive start. And, and Brainify seems like it's doing incredibly well. But let's take a step back first and really just go over how you got started. Uh, and, you know, just walk us through the path to, uh, towards you founding or co-founding Brainify. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing started a few years back after I graduated from computer, computer engineering. Okay. Uh, I ended up working at Apple and Symantec came across probably a few hundred different marketing technologies and really quickly realized that people really want data science, but they don't always have the know-how or the classical training to apply it at scale and use it in a way that's really effective for their end consumer experiences. Um, met my co-founder at an IEEE conference. We talked a lot around user behavior and how dynamic we as consumers are. And um, that's how Brainify was born. The whole vision around what we've been trying to build and been working towards is we want to democratize data science. And today we're starting with consumer enterprises to help them enable predictive personalization at scale, but definitely really focused on giving the best consumer experiences possible without you having to manage your own team of data scientists to make those experiences a reality. Okay, so let, let's, so first, so you, what you were, uh, what were you doing at Apple and Symantec? Were, were you a software engineer or? Yep, so I was a software engineer in both okay. parts. At Apple, I was in the IAD group, really focused on algorithms. On Symantec, oh, wow. I was working with the e-commerce group. And so in both different ecosystems, I picked up a lot around what it takes to be able to roll out new technologies, but also what that meant for the bottom line. So for us today, we primarily work with marketers, but we understand the hardships of being able to integrate and implement. And so we really worked hard to build our platform to be as plug and play as lightweight as possible so that you can really experience the quality and the effectiveness without having to go through you know, six months of integration before it's really effective. No, and, and that that's, uh... That, that that's impressive I mean, that you're solving a huge pain point there now with with, with data science data science has been around for for a while but it has become one of those really kind of key jargon or these huge trends out there lately why 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 has that happened over the the last like five ten years yeah i mean data science isn't a new concept right it's mm. been around for the last 10 to 20 years but the last few years you've really seen a big influx of the need to have applied data science within your large enterprises. And I think that comes down to two reasons, right? One is that machine learning and data science and AI is here to come and it's not going anywhere. You need it to be able to be more scalable, more effective, but at the same time, um, there's more startups, some more kind of businesses coming up that's able to bring in algorithms into their solutions. And so you're seeing a lot more investments into technology that houses their own algorithms as well. So the combination between the market needing it, but also mm -hmm. more technology spinning up 
there's lots of flavors when it comes to data science and those kind of jargon soup, as I would like to call it. But there's definitely, there's a lot of flavors. And at the end of the day, it comes down to application. And yep. there's a way of how can you work with algorithms, especially for people that are not classically trained, especially yeah. in a world where data scientists are not every other person, how can you make sure you still bring that technology into your, your realm, but in a way that isn't just theoretical, it's actually affecting the bottom line. Yeah, and, and so so you've, cr you've created a solution where it's a lot easier. You, the, the, it, the, the work isn't necessarily uh, on, on the, the company, right? You, they don't have to hire, go out and hire a, data, a, a team of data scientists probably. To, to build up uh, build up uh, all this knowledge and, and go through their database and find these patterns. You're providing a solution that really with just a, a few lines of code, they can leverage your software, right? Yeah, I mean, we work with one of the world's kind of largest enterprises today, whether it's BevMo or consumer packaged goods or even things that's in the financial sector and, and firms there. At the end of the day, there's a whole process when you think about the personalization journey and many firms are on different stages and spectrum across uh -huh. this. You have some that's in the early stages trying to figure out how do you actually collect data in a really scalable way? What can you do with that data once that's in your system? How do you tag your sites? And then you can move on to something more advanced, which is how can you actually optimize that consumer journey? How can you start generating baselines? That's not bias. And then taking that step further, which is how can you now do this predictive personalization at scale? Because the human eye can only do so much. As right. a person, we can maybe at most figure out that there's 10 types of people coming to my site, but what can you actually give them as a unique experience and how can you divide that up? So it's really a one-on-one -on -one experience mm -hmm. is where you need a, a system or a platform that will help you kind of go across all of that. So at the end of the day, you know, where we see that niche is we have the the marketers who are really eager to get the ROI and the conversion counts, but not necessarily the support to be able to roll out new solutions every other day. And then you have the analytics teams that wants to be able to get results and transparency and tell the AI is functioning. Then you have the engineering teams where, to be honest, no engineering teams want to integrate marketing technologies. Usually they <laughs> want to build product. And we know this. I mean, in my past experience, I want to build product. I don't necessarily want to integrate something that was asked of me that I didn't have a say in, right? So right. Um, when you see that kind of trifecta of people that exist in all larger enterprises, that's where we, we sit in there. We help to bridge that gap between all the different groups. So uh, there's a little bit of everything for everyone, but at the end of the day, what's really effective is our AI is able to understand behavioral context and do something about it. So it's closing that loop. Okay, so so can you give an example of, for that that part with understanding the behavioral context? Yeah, I mean, one of our um, awesomest customers is Bevmo. So if yeah. you've ever purchased alcohol on the West Coast, you've probably been to one of their stores. Um, if you think about just how we change and adapt in our taste preferences, and I'll use myself as an example, right? I mean, most of the time, I'm not heavily drinking. But when I do, I, I enjoy a nice glass of red wine here and there. But sometimes if it happens to be the end of a quarter and my sales team and my whole marketing team and my whole team does fantastic and my product's growing, well, I wanna make sure everyone gets to celebrate together. So 
I may go and purchase spirits that I normally would not drink and get that delivered over to my teammate's house, which is a very different behavior than my traditional, which could be more of a preference towards red wine. Okay. But also because if it's hot outside and it's a weekend, I may be interested in something that's cold and bubbly. And so this really dynamic way of understanding what we want in the moment becomes really important instead of just kind of slapping a one size fit all hat on Diane saying, I'm only into buying red wines. It's able to have a really dynamic approach, which is what helps to drive the revenue, the sales, and all in all, just stickiness, right? And your customers coming back, retaining them so that you can really drive and, and give them better experience. So with, with the software, so if you go to a, the BevMo site, it, it could pick up that you're not necessarily shopping for yourself, it, it, you're, there's some kind of celebration happening or some kind of momentous event happening and here are some bubblies that you could use to we recommend that you could uh use to celebrate exactly and this type of insight and context the context behind it can be applied in all sorts of different ways without you having to uproot your existing marketing tech stack where really this ai is a service that you can stick in you can make your existing tech stack really, really smart. So you can put our recommendations, our dynamic content, our personalization on your existing website. You can inject it into your email. So instead of having to redevelop your email templates every time, you end up having one with millions of variations, wow. which saves huge amounts of time. We help other brands cut their newsletters from six weeks of prep down, down to an hour. Um, <laughs> but all of that comes from getting better content, better experience, yeah but also a better process. And, yeah, I mean, that, I mean that, that's uh, the six weeks down to an hour or a couple of hours is, uh, I, that, that's really kind of mind blowing. It doesn't even seem real. Uh, uh, now, usually how long does it take, take uh, a customer of yours to kind of get up and running for even just a website or something? Yeah, I mean, we recently just signed a few other new partners. And so our launches are 14 days or less. And so our goal is we want to get you a de-risk assessment of whether you should partner with Brandify in the long term. And I think a lot of enterprise marketing technologies out there, they promise you the world and then they give you a six to nine month integration time. And then they tell you at some point you're going to see an ROI. For us, we like to make sure that we prove it out for you. So you're not just coming in here based off of only trust, deciding if we're gonna be your partner for the next three to five years, but we essentially give you a 30 day trial. And this POC is a paid POC, but we launch in 14 days, give you two different use cases. One, which is a existing use case that you can really see the split test and the AB test to see the difference between Brainify versus your existing process. Okay. And the second one, which is something that you may wanna launch, but it would take your engineering team maybe three or six months before you can really get it up and going to make sure the data feeds are going the right way, the idea of what you want and strategy and analytics to be set up. So we'll help you launch that in a really quick fashion to show you the speed about having a system that's plug and play and really lightweight like ours. Yeah, and and so you're, how, how long has the company been around, Brainify? So we've been around since 2016, but okay. we, when we first started, we were actually really focused on developing as an API. We wanted to be um, leverage in a lot of new tools and software. Yeah. And we ended up meeting our first marketing partners around 2018. And ever since then, we've been focused a lot on consumer enterprises on, mar on the marketing team or the brand teams. So we specialize in specialty retailers and consumer packaged goods now. Okay. And, and so you're this 
new company, uh, relatively small, competing against these much larger, slower moving companies. So that that in many ways that that that's a nice advantage for you to enable uh, for to enable you guys to to really kind of hone in on a niche have you, have you seen that there's yeah i mean speed to market is one benefit right of yeah. being able to use our platform but i think where our partners end up staying is because the results are really effective and the algorithms sense. are things that you don't have to train yourself I think there are some brands which are very lucky if they have a big data science team that will support marketing. But majority of the larger kind of Fortune 500 brands, they find that marketing, they kind of have to depend and rely on themselves to be able to strategize, find user behavior patterns, and then do something about it. So where we come in is we help with that perspective, and then we help drive it home a little bit earlier. Um, so at the end of it, speed is what gets us through the door, but our results is what makes us stick after the 30-day POCs. No, that, that's, that's really excellent. And uh, so let, let's take a quick break here and we'll continue this conversation. So stay tuned and we will be back in a few minutes. Interactive Brokers charges USD margin loan rates from 0.75% to 1.59%. Their clients can also earn extra income by lending their fully paid shares of stock. Join Interactive Brokers clients from 200 plus countries and territories to invest in stocks, options, futures, funds, and bonds globally. Minimize your costs to maximize your returns. Rates subject to change. Learn more at ibkr.com compare. Diane Kang is our guest on Investing with IBD, sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Okay, Diane, let's uh, continue going into this conversation here. And I think that one of the, the first questions that, that I have for you is, you know, there are a lot of solutions to AI. So what is your, why is your solution a little bit uh, different or a little bit more appealing right now? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely lots of different AI platforms and services out there. I think the part that makes us the most unique, at least from a technical standpoint, is that we're a temporal AI. What that means is we take a lot of timing context into how a person's preferences from a consumer standpoint will be. And it's not necessarily a new technology, but it's a new application of the temporal space. So back in the day, even today, actually, a lot of air, airlines, airports, ground transportation, even fraud detection leverages a lot in the temporal space. They leverage a lot of time intervals to kind of assess when there's patterns or anomalies. And so the way we've applied it is we took those really powerful algorithms and applied them in-house directly to how we think about user behavior. And given that, it gives our partners really valuable and effective results. But on top of that, it means that they don't necessarily have to go and find their own expert on the best personalization engine that they could build in-house. They could actually hook into ours and get that power and that kind of capabilities right out of the box in a way that's really easy to digest as the end consumer's use cases. Yeah, it's, it's when I hear it, once again, I, I want to say that it just sounds too good to be true because it's just like you plug something in and now you're getting access to this. But that seems to be the trend for a number of uh, things going on in the tech industries these days. I, I, I remember uh, hearing about Twilio where it was essentially the same thing. If you want messaging capabilities and things like that, it's just a plug and play. You don't need to hire your own data scientist team there too. So that this is almost the name of the game right now if you really want to thrive in the industry, it seems. 
Yeah, I mean, plug and play is an important part, being lightweight, because I think there is different competition out there. Yeah. But at the end of the day, um, lightweight can come in lots of different shapes and sizes. Lightweight can mean that it's easy to use, but not necessarily fast to activate, or it'd be fast to activate, but it doesn't really hit your enterprise needs. And so that's where we set from at least my background and my co-founder's background, we come from a pretty good understanding around how do you actually deploy products and features in a large enterprise scale? Yeah. Given that, that combination is how we're able to say, yes, it does sound good, too good to be true, but what's your risk? You know, you pay a low cost for a POC, which is almost negligible, right? Yeah. We want to prove to you that this is true. Yeah. And then you actually give us 14 days to go live and you get results all throughout. So it's a really good way to de-risk whether or not this vendor is right for you, but it's also our way to kind of put our foot through the door and really kind of like show you what we're capable of, right? So you're not just thinking this is going to be a poof of hot air, but it's really the fact that once you get to try it, we've never lost a partner since then. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. So you, you give the, the the trial. You have confidence in the the solution, and after 14 days, you've convinced everyone to say, "Okay, you know what? Let's continue a little bit further on this." Yeah. So it's a it's a good mix. I think you don't get very many enterprise grade solutions that can yeah. do that. You get a lot of SaaS tools like Twilio where you can hook up, but you need to have your own engineers. You need to think about your own, how you're going to organize that data. You have to think about your own strategies and then de-risk which ones are actually the right use cases for you and then test it and then track it, right? So there's a lot of moving parts, which is what bogs a lot of people down, like not just marketers, right? But if you just think about as a daily consumer, all the things that goes into the engagements that you're getting, whether it's a simple email to a web experience, it's not that simple to actually set up. There's no, a lot of work that's put in there, a big communications calendar, six, eight weeks in advance to try and get you this one thing that may look really simple. And so that's where we come in, right? Is finding that good balance between giving those enterprise the custom and the capabilities at their scale with all the amount of consumers, but also doing it in a way that builds up as a step-by-step -step approach. And so that's really where I think is, at least from a business model standpoint, we've done a really good job at, but we also have a really strong product, which definitely helps in the deliverability of, of the results afterwards. I think you have to have both of that right. and not all startups, especially smaller companies can manage between that. So not to toot my own horn, but I think those <laughs> definitely an area that I'm, very proud of our team from both the product side as well as on the business side. No, it, it is uh, it, it is really impressive since I'm, I'm part of the marketing team, so I see this with uh, you know, the main team working on emails and figuring out how to brand things and and coordinate the messaging and everything. And and I work closely with the engineering team and the product team too, so I, I know the the issues that pop up and how complicated even is something that's so simple. Uh, uh, can be. Um, now, this brings to a really another question, and I think it's it's really relevant, uh, and it's become uh, headline news these days since Apple's kind of changing some of their policies. But privacy concerns, uh, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, a lot of things are dependent on cookies and tracking uh, people going from website to website. You know, how are you dealing with these privacy concerns, and also how do you alleviate your customers on that? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's coming. No matter how long we prolong it, um, customer private, consumer privacy and security is on its way. And if you look at how your 
the European nations are handling with GDPR, with CCPA here in California, it's not something that I think should be brushed under the rug really lightly. So at the end of the day, um, consumer consent is quite important. You know, people should be given the opportunity to decide what they want to see and what data they want being passed. But on the other hand, if providing that data gives you a really big benefit, then people are more likely to do it. And I think when you think about examples where people are willing to give information, if you think about maybe the movie trailers, I know with the pandemic, not everyone's uh, movies aren't a big thing, but- <laughs> Yeah, what's, what's a movie theater, right? Yeah, I know, what is a theater? Um, <laughs> but you know, the main thing about there is when trailers come out, inherently what they are is their marketing and their a, a consumer experience that's been created. But if it's good, you don't think of it as it's a commercial or that it's a piece of engagement, you know, being thrown at you. But actually, when it's bad, then you look at it as mm, this was kind of a waste of my time and it was bad. It, it wasn't helpful. And so that's the way, at least at Brainify, we approach the, the privacy concerns there very similarly. So we do have um, infrastructure to be able to handle all the different laws that's coming in, ensuring that the data stored in the country of origin, um, single points of deletion and things like that. But I think at the core of it, there's the concept that if you're able to provide really good value with um, the fact that you can have the opportunity and um, the ability to have someone's you know, user behavior data, you wanna make sure you're returning them with something of value. Mm -hmm. And so for us, that's the way we educate our customers um, and our partners is, yes, you should allow people to have consent, but for the people that do not want their data tracked, it doesn't mean their experience shouldn't be personalized. You should still allow them to have anonymized personalization that can take maybe trends from time of day, day of week, even localized weather as part of it. So they're still getting value, but they're learning that there's ROI from exchanging some additional information to the brand. So it's part of that education that we really encourage our customers to go for. But at the end of the day, I think it would be really naive to believe that consumer privacy and all that will be something not important and not coming. So you have to have different approaches so that you can cater to the people that are um, on the grayscale of yes, they want to give as well as on the other end where they're not willing to give, but still give benefits from both ends so that they can be encouraged to know that there's benefits from sharing. Yeah, I, well, I think uh, a company like Spotify comes to, to mind when I'm talking about personalization and, and privacy concerns, uh, because their people are more than willing to, you know, tell tell Spotify what their taste in music is, and then Spotify starts learning that and yep. starts recommending other artists that they may be interested based on their previous selections. Exactly. And it's not just a part of like sharing other things that's good for your preferences. It's also to help with discovery, right? Yeah. When you're really, you know, wanting to get to know a brand, you want to discover and go across all the different types of content that's available. Like I know for us, we work a lot with consumer packaged goods that have food recipes and but they're not just known for food recipes, they're known for the actual product, they're known for their educational content. And so how can you be able to pollinate those in a way that's really efficient, right? So if you think about maybe investing with investors.com, you have lots of different solutions, mm -hmm. you have your actual content site, it doesn't mean that they have to sit in their own silos. So if we can help showcase the value of maybe leveraging your ticker inside your investors.com website, then understanding the ROI that comes with 
bring on a new solution and, and paying for it becomes much more apparent, right? And so that's where we sit in. It's really about um, not only discovery of content, personalized content, but knowing that there is a place where the consumer is going to find everything that they need and understand why they should be spending more with you, right? So same as Spotify, you could share your music tastes, yeah. but that also means that you're helping them as a, as a business understand taste preferences, but you're also help guiding trends that could be used for new visitors, new users, new signups, for example. So it's it's a circle, you know, and it allows it to, to be helpful all throughout. Yeah, and, and so th th this whole kind of uh, process that you're talking about, you that kind of falls under the category of smart personalization. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so, yeah, um, it, it just seems like this is just going to be have to be applied to every industry or, or those companies that don't do it, they're going to not have that engagement from those consumers and eventually start going out of business. Exactly. I mean, personalization is something that's so key. Yeah. And there's definitely lots of definitions around what's good personalization, how to do it. You know, there's some approaches which is really kind of clustered and segmented where you try and find a vendor that's really good at segmenting, a vendor that's really good at curating, a vendor that's good at analytics. And then there are some where they want to find personalization engines as a whole. So definitely lots of different approaches. And, you know, you have to figure out what works the best for you. But the way I feel our partners have found really good successes in short amounts of time that's persistent comes down to thinking about the business process and knowing that whatever vendor that they bring in shouldn't be disrupting and extending the amount of time it takes to actually run different types of experiences. At the end of the day, it's all about quick iterations, getting good results, and then using those you know, strategies to be able to prioritize other things and allowing a, a, a platform to help you capture that long tail of opportunities that you and your team may not see, right? Like, we're all human. We don't have all the time in the world to stay up 24 hours, um, you know, refrain from hobbies and eating and all these things. But a system like software can. And so it's there to help you. It's not there to replace you. But with personalization as it's moving forward, it's become a more holistic approach. You have to really think about the consumer experience from different channels, different content, um, the fact that their preferences change. Like, Today, I may be interested in investing in sports. The next day, I may be interested in investing in tech. You know, you never know. So you have to be able to be dynamic and be really adaptable. And that comes down to having good software and good algorithms. So to us, when we look at how we build Brainify, it's this whole umbrella. It's not just having the best algorithms or the best business process. It's that we have to make those meld so that at the end, we're really helping our partners in a way that goes beyond just here's algorithms, apply it, but really changing that personalization process and expectation of what you should be doing for your end consumers. And so with, with this, with, with these trends starting with the personalization or really starting to maybe even accelerate or getting even uh, more specific, uh, where, where do you see this going in like the next five to 10 years? Did you have some kind of outlook on where this trend could uh, continue? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you maybe this outlook from two different perspectives. 
One, which is from the consumer side. We are, you know, getting more access to digital assets and more websites and just a lot more overall content, right? So there's a lot more noise. And for us to be able to be really attached to a brand, to really feel the need to go back and participate and engage in loyalty and create that stickiness, we need to have an expectation. Like it's oftentimes that we already expect that the right thing is shown to us in a very quick way. Mm -hmm. And so from a consumer standpoint in the next five years, I think the speed for how we get to what we need or what we want to discover has to be much quicker. And it's expected that brands will um, essentially deliver on this. And if they don't, we move on, right? So from a consumer yeah. standpoint, think about yourself, how you interact with your apps, whether it's shopping, whether it's engagement, whether it's thinking about what's in your pantry for your household goods, it's a really, really fast process. So speed becomes really important. Relevance becomes even more important and the ability to think ahead to what I'm going to need. For example, when I'm about to run out of a spice in my spice cabinet, yeah. getting ahead of those moments is yeah. kind of what I'm expecting as, as the trend and also what I will be interested in to stay put with a brand. Now, from the, the business perspective, I think enterprises are at a really interesting time. You have some industries where they're much further ahead. So you think about fashion, think about um, maybe the Fortune 100 retailers. They're all very ahead where they want to use as much algorithms as possible. They want personalizations. They want um, you know custom curations and things like this. And that's great. They're really moving towards that. For them, it really comes down to how can you get ahead of people's needs and doing this at a larger scale across all of your different SKUs and consumers, just lots of combinations. And then you have maybe like consumer goods on the other end where they're starting to explore data collection, first party data, because in the past they've always sold through third parties. So how can they start building up their own data repertoire and their strategies there? So with that, um, you know, for them, it's about how can they jump instead of going through the same trials and tribulations as industries that's further along where they have to go step by step and collecting and then doing just other things with it. How can they be jumped almost like started and jumped to the end where they're almost competing with the highest industries. Yeah. And so for that, there's, I think the trends are gonna be very industry specific, but overall from a consumer goods standpoint, there's gonna be a turning point. They either will find vendors that's really good at bringing customer data together, or they're gonna be smarter and think further along and pick vendors like us where connecting and collecting is one piece of it, but doing it with purpose is another. And then on the retail side and industries, that's a little bit faster along. It comes down to who has the better algorithms and the ability to test them in a really quick way to know that there's ROI and to speed up the ROI process. Wow. So you're not waiting two years before vendors are giving you what you need, but being able to see that, like, I, I brought this vendor on, we got it going, we're not bogged down by the process and we're really able to, to excel at the experience and you know, have a breath of fresh air that's no longer a tug of war between engineering, marketing, analytics to get things done, but now it's a team that's cohesive. So those are the trends I see in the next kind of five years or so. Personalization is here to come, but there's different approaches. I think smart personalization, when you think about algorithms and AI as a service is going to become more prevalent. So at the end of the day, retention is really important. We're in the retention business. So I'm a little bit biased there, but I'm a believer <laughs> that if you're going to be running any sort of acquisition to get more customers, sticking them down a leaky funnel is 
probably one of the worst things you could do right. to help your bottom line. So that's where I sit. I think technology is going to get stronger. Different business approaches will come out, but consumer expectations will continue to remain high. And so for brands to deliver on those becomes tougher, which is why they need software that will help them versus just adding more body count to be able to run better marketing. No, I mean, it, it was, uh, this was a great cra uh, crash course on what's going on in, in the marketing world and the, in the software enterprise world. So thanks so much, Diane, for joining us today. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Coming up next, we are going to go to the third segment. And when we return, we will have Scott St. Clair join us to talk about the markets and a few ideas. So we'll be back in a second. Interactive Brokers charges 1.59% for a $100,000 margin loan. Do you know how much your broker charges? Upwards from 6.82% at Fidelity or Schwab to as high as 7.45 to 7.75% at E-Trade or Ameritrade. Move your account to Interactive Brokers and save at least $5,200 or much more if you're trading big bucks. Welcome back to Investing with IBD sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Now let's welcome Scott St. Clair, Senior Product Coach of MarketSmith on the show. Scott, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Yep, thank you. Does this count as a full show or just a half? Uh, it's, it's only a third of a show. Third, so I'm, I'm, I've got one and a third uh, appearances so far. Yes, there you go. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the current market first, Scott. Uh, now the market is a confirmed uptrend. It, it, got, a, it got a little uh, crazy there. The, the last week, as we know, uh, with the GameStop and all the, these heavily shorted stocks going through the roof and forcing hedge funds, I guess, to start liquidating uh, leading growth stocks. Uh, and so the market went under pressure last week. We put it back in a confirmed uptrend, I think, was it last night or two nights ago? Uh, but yeah, two uh, days we, ago. Was it two days ago? Okay, yeah. so two days ago. And then we have one distribution day on the NASDAQ, five on the S&P 500. Let me pull up the MarketSmith charts here. So if you are listening to this outside uh, or driving, you, you can always uh, go to investors.com slash podcast and uh, take a look at the charts that Scott and I are looking at. Here's uh, the NASDAQ. And so you can see we closed below, and, and I think that was Friday, we closed below the 21-day moving average, which was the first time we closed below it in a long time since November 3rd. So that was a cause for concern there with the way we closed on Friday. Our stocks just do quite a bit better when the Nasdaq's above the 21-day moving average. So the fact that we closed on below it on Friday, that was a cause for concern. But then Monday... Look like we are the the great correction of 2021 was over with and <laughs> and we're back off to the races. Scott, your thoughts? Yeah, so it uh, Friday was a lousy day. Our stocks got hit really hard, and in when you combine that with the you know the speculation way off the you know speculations at an 11, shout out to Spinal Tap, <laughs> um, you know with GameStop and AMC. And if you, you know, it probably made a lot of veterans nervous, made me very nervous. Me I would have thought for sure that we we're going to at least get some type of correction. I was very defensive coming in uh, for Monday and the market just shakes it off just time after time after time. 
And, um, you know, it's the old expectation breaker. We should have been lower Monday. Yeah. I'm not saying we had to go down a lot, but you know, you'd think it would open lower and then rally, or if it opened higher, it would go down to, you know, test everyone and then come back. Mm. And it, it's just so strong. It can't do either one. It just opened higher and stayed higher, just relentless all day. And it, it just tells you the strength of, of the market. The market just refuses to go down. It had, had a million reasons to go down. Um, and you're right. I think a lot of, uh, um, hedge funds were de-risking because first of all, they don't want to be short. Nobody wants to be short anything. There's just no way they're going to be short. So there are actually some hedge funds out there. Most of them, the word hedge is, is a misnomer. They don't hedge. It should be called leverage funds. You know, they, they, they put, most of them just use margin. Uh, They don't hedge, but there are some hedge funds out there. And um, most of them, you know, don't want to be short. They take the hedges off. And if they do that, then they probably want to reduce some risk elsewhere. And so that's probably what you saw. You know, they were selling, you know, even Tesla went down for half a minute and they just start selling anything they can, right? Uh, Because they need to raise, you know, they need liquidity. But the market shakes it off. And in Monday, I just was sitting there as like, this market doesn't want to go down. I need to start putting stuff back on. I, I, anything I sold on Thursday or Friday, it, it's it look it's looking like a mistake. You know, now it can always be another head fake back down, and so you have your your plan. But um, you know, I, I just see this market is very resilient until it isn't, and that's that's been the case, as you can see, since you know the March lows. Even that sell off in uh, early September, we had, you know, I had two or three yeah. really bad days, yeah. um, you know, and it didn't take long for the market to shake that off. You know, if uh, a couple of weeks later, your, your at or near highs tries to go down again. And a couple of days later, you're at or, or near highs. So, um, you know, we have a system for protecting ourselves, which is good. And it will keep you out of every bear market if you let it, you will not go down with the ship is what I like to say. You're going to be out in 2000. The signals were all there protection in 07, 08. The signals were all there and the COVID crisis. The signals were all there as well. Um, the signals are coming much faster than they used to. You don't quite have the time that you probably did, you know, in 2000 or 2008 to read the tea leaves, uh, but they're there, but you can have some false signals too. So if you reduce your, 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 your portfolio, you know, maybe you have to start putting some back on again, just to see if it's getting traction. Uh, but it's okay to ebb and flow. We, we like, we all say it. It's, it's one of the, you don't have to make an all or none decision, you know? So if you're, if you're feeling the effects of the market and you're 80% invested, there's no reason you can't go to 60 or 50. You don't have to go 80 to zero. You know, I don't want to do that because now from going back from zero to even 40%, that's a lot. That's really hard to do, but go 80 to 40 and boy, that that's, this isn't working 40 to 20. This isn't working 20 to 10 and so on and so forth. You, you'll just be reducing your exposure slowly, but surely. Yeah. It, the, uh, the volatility has made it very tricky lately and but it, it is interesting that 
now you know, looking back now maybe the cause was the the de-risking the deleveraging and and kind of uh, trying to make up for some of those losses some of these funds were having on the short side uh, so in the end just like scott said look at those leading stocks it's expectation breakers if they didn't break and go lower and they, they did the opposite like exactly what monday happened there comes a point where you have to kind of just say you know what I thought and what the market was telling me on Friday is completely wrong or it's, it's different now. And the market's yeah. telling me something else. And so I have to listen once again. Um, yeah, so, oh, go ahead. And I'm sorry, Arusha, but it's, it's an old market saying, but it, it's so, you know, you, it's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to stay wrong. So, yeah. you know, if you're wrong and you make a mistake and either way up or down or sideways, it's, it's okay to, you know, so if you sold some stuff on Friday, you're nervous, that's okay. Um, you just don't stay wrong. Maybe put something back on. If you, if you made a mistake and you did that, because I've done that before and sheer panic gone from, you know, 80 to zero. Yeah, and then, you know, because I'm human and, but now, okay, I've, I've made a mistake. Let's not make another one by just sitting there and, and maybe now let's just start putting on some exposure slowly. Yeah. So let's go to a few stocks here. The, the first one that I'm going to pull up and, and all three of these stocks, they just reported earnings. Uh, this is, uh, it's 3.09 here in, uh, in um, uh, East uh, Pacific Coast time. Uh, and so some of these stocks, they reported the earnings. So Quar Quarvo is the, the first one. It is looking like uh, it is down 7.36% after the earnings report. Looked like they had pretty good numbers too. And uh, Sometimes, those, actually, a lot of times, those numbers don't necessarily translate into a positive reaction. Scott, first talk about reactions to earnings because they don't always line up. People are always confused about that. It's like, wait a minute, my company that uh, the stock that I own, they beat earnings, but it's going down. It's not going up. Now, why? Why is that? Yeah. Well, the why is is so hard to explain. But the markets, as a general rule, the markets looking six months forward. So what Cuervo is telling you today happened a quarter ago, right? So the market's anticipating where they'll be, you know, as a general rule, let's just say six months from now. So that's why, you know, the, the, the numbers now, that's why we use technicals to reduce exposure, to sell things that aren't acting right, because the fundamentals will always be, you know, really good at the top as a general rule. If you're using fundamentals, you're, you're going to be late. One of my friends who's been trading forever, he asked me, you know, what, you know, where do you get the estimate for, um, I think it was Palantir is going to uh, report earnings. He was curious about the estimate. And I was like, I don't know. I, I wouldn't have the slightest clue, what, you know, what the estimate is for Palantir. Because even if I knew, if, if, if the CFO told me what Palantir is going to make in earnings, uh, I'm not certain I would know how to trade it because right. maybe right. they beat the number, but they say, you know, yeah, things are slowing down or maybe they miss on the number, but they say things are speeding up, you know, and so you could get run over just, just based on that. So earnings are very, very tricky nowadays. Um, and you, so you have to adjust position sizing and, and things like that accordingly in Cuervo and Qualcomm, although, you know, 
outside my wheelhouse. I can't tell you exactly how they're different, but they're both in the semiconductor space. So if you have a lot of exposure in one area, you can be, you know, you can get a double whammy because I think we'll talk about Qualcomm as well and they're down as well too. So one thing that we, we try to make sure is we don't want too much exposure in one sector slash, you know, industry group. Yeah, and so Cor Corvo, I, I, I switched over to the weekly chart here. It's in a really nice uptrend. It's been been like this for a couple of quarters. So let's see how the reaction, the downside sell-off, and maybe changes before we open tomorrow. Anything's possible, but most likely it's going to open up down. Let's see how they treat that. And in the end, that's going to give us a clue. It, are there some, because it's coming to, it might be a little bit below the 50-day moving average, are there going to be some larger funds that come in and try to support the stock and hold it there and not let it fall too far below the 50 day moving average, because then that could cause more people to panic and start selling off too. Uh, so keep an eye on this and uh, they do have good earnings and sales, but it's always what the reaction is, not why. Uh, let's go to the second stock and this is Qualcomm ticker symbols QC. OM, and this is a classic and obviously a, a big player in the 5G uh, trend that's going on right now. They have, their numbers were great too. It went from a few quarters ago, 8% to 86% to 119% this quarter uh, or you know, a Q4 quarter. But, uh, and then the sales strong, great uptrend, but they're down 6.86% right now. Uh, it's that guidance a lot of times. And so let's see how they react to Scott. Yeah. So how can a stock go down on, on good news? Well, it also went up on, you know, what looked on the surface to be, you know, not all that great fundamentals. So, you know, when it was, stock was in the nineties, the market anticipated these two last quarters with Qualcomm are stellar. Look at those numbers. Right. Yeah. 86 and 73 on earnings and revenue mm -hmm. previous quarter. 119 and 62 this one so you know the market got in front of those numbers so now the next step is we don't know what the next few quarters are going to do but the market will get in front of that now one day doesn't make a trend and and you know if you have a good cost basis you might be able to survive it who knows you know how it's going to end the week uh, partly why we prefer weekly charts is to try to you know, survive these shakeouts that seem to come all the time but that's that's just the nature of, of earnings in, in the market. It's it's just constantly looking forward to what they, they think can happen. And it's gotten a lot harder for the analysts, you know, with, with Reg FD. You know, they don't get any guidance from the companies like they used to. Um, so they're they they're um, you know, they're for lack of a better term, guessing. Now these these are educated guesses, but they're guessing and and so it makes it um, the swings are a lot harder, are a lot, lot larger because their the the moves around the earnings are a, are a lot more dynamic than they used to. You know, yeah, I mean, so GE, I'm sorry, Rashid, but GE in the '90s was famous for beating estimates by a penny um, every quarter. I think they beat estimates by a penny for like 20 some quarters in a row. Wow, wow. It's like a, it's, you know, statistical uh, anomaly. It couldn't right. happen, right? Well, how does right. that happen? Well, the analysts know what the earnings are going to be because they've been massaged by, with the, you know, with GE management and 
GE knows what the street thinks the earnings are going to be. And so they have room based on all the accounting to, you know, to move some money here, move some money there, take some here, take some there and beat by a penny over and over. And, and, and those days are over. They just, you know, it's not, it's not, they can't do that like they used to do. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and unfortunately, I mean, they're, they're, with the, the Reg FD, there, there are some unintended consequences that that law was uh, put into place because of the insider trading and kind of the management whispering to analysts mm -hmm. and insider info getting out, uh, which on the surface, and it makes a lot of sense why that law went through, especially after WorldCom and all that. But uh, these big gap ups and gap downs are kind of the unintended consequences, unfortunately, for yes. that. But this one could gap down right to the 50 day. It's a little bit below right now, but you know, it, it has found support on the 50 day for the last six months or so. And so the, there's no reason to think, you know, you don't want to assume that it's going to break the trend. Just let the stock uh, wait and see what the stock actually does. And, and now if it breaks a trend, that could be a little bit of a character change. Just might need a break, but we'll, we'll just wait and see what Qualcomm does tomorrow. Uh, right now, from the, it built the base uh, uh, half a year ago, a big cup with handle, it's up 76% from that base. So it, it could be uh, due for a little bit of a rest, but uh, that's Qualcomm. It's one to keep an eye on to get a nice uh, indicator on how the semiconductors are doing. And then uh, the third stock that we have was uh, PayPal. And so ticker symbol PYPL. And uh, so they reported earnings after hours and they are up 6.59%. And so here's a, a steady Freddy as we like to, to say, uh, it's, it's a kind of a slow moving stock, not as fast moving as a square, but uh, you know, sometimes it's really nice to have a stock like this in the portfolio and uh, those pops up, those jumps up don't hurt either, Scott. Yeah, this stock pains me. Cause me it's, too. it's just, I used to own it, you know, if you go to a weekly chart, yep. I, this was a stock that was very easy to own in, 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 I use that term loosely easy, but cause some people hold stocks better than me for sure. But yeah, you, you know, it's just kind of just grinded, grinded. Yeah. And I could, I could just own it and, and I never would look at it. I wouldn't, cause it would be up or down, you know, half a percent or whatever. And so it wouldn't really, um, you know, jam your portfolio so much like some of the other, uh, you know, uh, faster horses that, you know, I like to own. But it, this is this is a story for it, something I really wish I could get better at. And I'm constantly trying is just holding on. Now, I don't know. I, I know for a fact I couldn't have survived the COVID crisis, oh, yeah. um, you know, 34 percent in, in three or four weeks. But um, you can always buy it back. And then, you know, you just kind of, it, it's the, it, when you have something this strong that, and the other thing about it is this is a product I use and it's very easy to use and very easy to understand. This would, this stock was probably would have been in the right in the sweet spot for Bill. This is the kind of stock that, you know, he, he could you know, uh, buy and, and really position in and hold and, right. and add to correctly. So, um, well, I mean, it, I mean, you mentioned Bill O'Neill, who's the founder of Investors Business yeah. Daily, and you know, one of the great growth uh, investors out there. But uh, I immediately looked towards the earnings stability, 
and yeah. it's a three. And so this is one of those ratings that the lower the number, the better, which really means that they're very consistent at hitting the numbers that are expected. And I remember hearing at one of those seminars that Bill, Bill O'Neill spent like an hour just on that rating saying, this is why this rating is very, very important. This is why I like it. And uh, he, then he pulled up a number of stocks like Chipotle and mm -hmm. uh, AutoZone was, was one of those stocks, I think in like 2011 that he just had built a big and position and just probably arrived. was the inspiration I presume, or at least one of them for the long-term leaders list in IBD yeah. is because of that. Yeah. 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 So yeah. PayPal is just one of those stocks that you just let it trend when it's truly trending. Cause look at it on a weekly chart, this stock, when it, when it trends, it can stay above that uh, 10 week line for a long time, or maybe break a little bit below for a couple of weeks and then get back above it quickly. Yeah. And so the, it's um, a nice one. The breakout in May, you, you've, you've got three weeks inside that cup below the 10 week line, but not, you know, barely below. And then oh, yeah, yeah. you've got uh, three other weeks where it tried to go up and then came back kind of a shakeout, but barely below, but um, mostly the stock's been, you know, plus or minus 5% of that 10 week line. And, you know, you just kind of use that as your proxy. Um, as long as you don't, you know, when it's really moving, you, you, you don't want to add too much because then your average cost moves up and that makes it harder to hold. You, it's kind of stock you want to add to off that 10 week line, which uh, I really would like to get better at. That's, that's, I, I look at Chipotle, uh, PayPal or you mentioned Chipotle or ServiceNow yeah. or Salesforce. These are stocks. Oh. You'd have made a uh, bloody I feel, I feel like we're going, we're going into, uh, we're, we're going down a slippery slope here for bringing These are Salesforce. stocks. So you make a bloody fortune if you, if you're any good at buying <laughs> off the 10 week line. Look at, I mean, you know, you're not going to get them all right. It's, yeah. but you look at Salesforce on the monthly. Uh, yeah. yeah, here we go. <laughs> so you, that's, so you really want that in your in your uh, in your repertoire? At least maybe you know if you own ten stocks, there's no reason you can't own one or two like that. It's true. It's true. Uh, so there are a few ideas that are worth considering. Thanks, Scott, for joining us today. Okay, bye. Thanks a lot. See you later. So that's it for this week on investing with IBD. I'm Arusha Paris, and thanks for listening. And for this week's Nilton charts, make sure to go to investors.com/podcast where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.